Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Okay, today is out of Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us to Cornerstone this morning. I pray that our hearts are open to what you have to say through John and that um, as we gather together, we are um, empowered by your spirit and open to what you have to teach us. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Emily and I are part of an apprentice group uh, that meets in our house, but we don't lead it, and it's all like 25 to 30-year-olds. Some, uh, some of our people are right here, and it's really, really fun. So our little house gets packed out every Tuesday night, and our children say, is today apprentice? They get really excited about our friends coming over. And it happened this week in our apprentice group that we were discussing this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And somebody just really candidly shared, you know, honestly, the kingdom reference is not super helpful for me because we don't live in a world where we relate to kings and kingdoms all that much. Some of you get way too over-obsessive about Harry and Meghan and all the monarchy stuff. I don't think about that very often at all. Uh, But mostly we don't think about kings, kingdoms, uh, monarchs, things like that. And so as we're making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, it occurred to me that it may be of some value to pause for just a minute and unpack what are we talking about when we talk about a kingdom. When Jesus is expounding on his first sermon, which was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Sermon on the Mount is really expounding and unpacking what that, what that initial sermon means. What are we talking about when we talk about a kingdom? Uh, and how does that shine light on the rest of the sermon for us? How does it illuminate Scripture for us? And so some of you have done this exercise before, but others of you have not. And so if you have, just kind of zip it for a bit here so we'll get other people chatting. I want you to share with me, what do you need to have to have a kingdom? What makes a kingdom? Just talk right out to me so I can hear it. What's that? You need a king. You need a leader. Okay, yeah. What else? Land, I heard. Someone else talk louder. An army, servants. What's that? Something. You do need something. Lots of some things. Yeah, I think I heard almost all of them that I was thinking of. Uh, somebody came up to me after the last service and said, you need a moat. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure. But yeah, at the very least, in a kingdom, you would have a king. Uh, you would have some kind of territory, the, the domain that that king rules over. Uh, You'd have laws. I don't think I heard anyone say laws, but here's how we behave in this kingdom. Uh, And then finally, you'd have the subjects, everyone who says, I belong to that kingdom. I'm I'm a citizen of that kingdom. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as we think about these dynamics, how does thinking about these four needs of a kingdom uh, have bearing on the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, the kingdom that he's inaugurating? Well, in Jesus' kingdom, he's the king. He's inaugurating his reign everywhere he goes. What's his territory? It's everywhere the will of God is done. And so when Jesus comes into a community and he's casting out demons and he's healing the sick, he says, behold, the kingdom of heavens is at hand. It's right here. I'm undoing the works of the enemy. The kingdom of the heavens is established wherever God's will is being done. 
We're taught to pray that God's kingdom would come and will be done where? On earth. Yeah, that the whole of the earth would be the territory of the kingdom of God. We have laws. You could make a couple different arguments for what the laws of the kingdom of the heavens are about, but I think you could certainly say the Sermon on the Mount announces these are how the people of the kingdom are to behave. Who are the subjects, though? As we talked last week, Jesus doesn't begin the Sermon on the Mount with a what. He doesn't begin his, his like, epic sermon with, here's what you should do to make me happier to be part of my kingdom. He doesn't start with a what. He starts with a who. He starts by naming the beneficiaries of his reign, the, the subjects of his kingdom. In, in his announcement of who are the beneficiaries of his reign, he doesn't come and primarily pick the Herods and the Caesars, the movers and the shakers. He doesn't come, but he, he, he announces the blessings on the poor in spirit. So we talked about last week. The run down, the ward and thin, the spiritually bankrupt. And the second group that he announces are the beneficiaries of his reign in the second beatitude are those who mourn. Blessings on those who are broken hearted. As we think about this who announcement, the people who are named to be the beneficiaries of the kingdom of the heavens, it tells us a heck of a lot about the king we have in Jesus and the kind of kingdom that Jesus is establishing. It's counterintuitive. We're used to kingdoms that are established by by pulling together the pretty and the popular and the powerful, but instead Jesus goes the opposite direction and goes for the spiritually bankrupt and the brokenhearted. The thing that I want you to hold on to most tightly as we're making our way through these eight months in the Sermon on the Mount is not just the content of the sermon, though I want you to hold on to that. I want you to remember the character and the authority and the presence and the tone of the one who gave the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount can be very discouraging if you think about, oh gosh, now I have to go obey all of this. It can be perplexing in the calls to action and at times the calls to inaction that are in the sermon, but only if you separate the speech from the speaker. E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary in India, friends of Gandhi, and in his book, Christ at the Mount, he said, put the man who spoke those words into the background and look only at his sayings, the stuff that he said, and they become as lofty as Himalaya peaks and as impossible. But put the warm touch of his reinvigorating fellowship into it, and anything, everything becomes possible. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What does it mean to mourn? A a really simple definition of, of mourning could be to feel regret or sadness about the loss of something. When you think about someone being in mourning, we typically think about it having lost a person that they love to death. And, and probably all of us in this room could name a loss like that that hurts. It could be the loss of a, a friend or a sibling or a parent or a child. Uh, we all remember the day we got a phone call, and that person was beyond our reach. And that ache hurts acutely. But we lose people to things other than death. Uh, sometimes we lose people to sickness that the person that you knew and loved uh, had an injury or had a sickness of some kind and though their body was fine, their mind began to go and they were no longer the person that you grew up loving or had become so accustomed to sharing life with. I think about transitions that can happen in friendships where someone that you were really close to in the passage of time, you drift apart and you're like strangers. And for each of those transitions, there can be 
mourning, grief, a kind of sadness and regret about the loss of something. But it's not just people. It could be the loss of a dream. All your life you've pictured doing this thing and stuff doesn't go like that and you mourn it. It could be the loss of an opportunity. You were really geared up for this big move and everyone was excited with you and then things fell through. You could mourn the changing of a season where things were so sweet and everybody was together, but then things changed and you look back on what you consider the golden age in your life. I think the the older we get and the more we get to know ourselves, we can mourn over the the state of our hearts. We can mourn over uh, our sin. I think if we're really honest, some of us can mourn about our lack of faith. It's like, man, I really want to believe. I really wish I could believe. And I just don't have all that much faith in the tank. I think you can mourn over the mess you've made of your life. You can mourn more like existentially over the state of the world. Those of us who are dreamers, like who who see what Christ's community could be, could mourn over the state of the church in America, could mourn over the state of the family or of your family. But each one of us here is different too. We have different values and temperaments and wirings and motivations. And so because of how the world is in its fallen state, there are things that you mourn that maybe others don't mourn in quite the same way. Those of you who are, who are dreamers, who are epic, who mourn the loss of ideals, it could be so much better. Those of you who like, may mourn kindness, the loss of kindness, You may mourn the the unmet potential in the world. If only we had our stuff together, we could be so much farther ahead. You might mourn the loss of beauty, the loss of intellect, the loss of security, the loss of joy, uh, the loss of justice, the loss of harmony. Each one of us in our unique temperaments and values may have unique mournings, and there's a lot to mourn in this world. But when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, or blessings on those who mourn, what kind of mourning did he have in mind? Dale Bruner, whose commentary on Matthew is astounding, he said, the absence of a specific object of mourning can warn us against supplying an object too quickly. He didn't say, blessed are you who mourn X. He didn't didn't say, it was just left wide open. The simple fact of being heartbroken, grief-stricken, in mourning is itself blessed. It's not the one who once mourned and no longer do, but it's those who now mourn, and even more specifically, those who are now mourning, who are now heartbroken, who have this blessing. This is such a great sentence here. On Jesus' authority, in deep sadness, human beings are in God's hand more than at any other time. Jesus extends the blessing of God to those who are sad and regretful and brokenhearted about any number of things. And as we shared last week, when Jesus is is laying out these beatitudes, these blessings, it's not just well-wishing. It's not good luck to those of you who find yourselves impoverished in spirit and those of you who are grieving and mourning. Hope things work out for you. It's not just well-wishing. When Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is extending these blessings, with his words, he's doing something. These words have what one person called performative power. His words are itself in action. We see it in a couple different like real-world examples. When an umpire calls a ball or a strike, his words do something. 
When a pastor says you're now husband and wife, those words do something. When a judge says you're innocent or you're guilty, all of those words enact a kind of reality. And when Jesus says, blessings on you who mourn, he's forging with his words a new tributary from the river of the blessing of God to those people who are heartbroken. He's extending the enabling presence of God, the blessing of God to those people who find themselves so, so sad for any number of reasons, or even for those who are sad and don't know why. At the end of the service, I'm going to share this prayer for those who feel sad and don't know why, and it just strikes me like that's the nature of life in our world. You ever wake up one of those, some mornings, and you just think, I'm just sad, and I can't point to anything? And maybe it's just like your soul sighing at the state of things. Or maybe you could name, this thing is ripping me to shreds. Jesus says, blessings on you who mourn. But Jesus doesn't provide a specific qualifier for what he's talking about or the kind of mourning he's pointing to. Most scholars tend to agree that Jesus had in mind the text that we read earlier from Isaiah 61. And we're going to share it again and think about it in light of the Beatitudes, and you'll think, I see why they think that. And, uh, and you'll find it's, really, it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Jesus spoke these words in a synagogue in Capernaum, and he said, they're fulfilled in your hearing by my presence. But originally, God said through Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Doesn't this already sound like the Beatitudes? To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, hold on to that image, and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations." If you pay attention to the text carefully, this is not generic mourning about sadness. It's not just a flowery, figurative language about being brokenhearted in general. This is the specific uh, word of good news to people who are mourning over exile. And if you remember, last year we, we made our way through the year of the Bible. We told the story of Israel's birth and growth and development and uh, united, being united under King David, and they were split, and then they were taken into exile. How in 722 B.C., the kingdom of Assyria came in and wiped out all of the northern tribes. And then in 587 and 586, the kingdom of Babylon, Babylonia, Babylon came in. And they, they sent all of the influencers back to Babylon so that they could unlearn their own history and heritage and be uh, brought into Babylonian culture. This is a good word. This is a word of good news to those who are experiencing the loss of exile. That through Isaiah, God is promising to replant his people, to exchange their shame for splendor and dignity. It's an address to those people who have lost everything, those people who are in exile. If you remember uh, the story of the Old Testament, the land was everything. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls this guy Abram and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you this land this uniquely positioned piece of land from which you are going to bless all of the nations in the world. It's a gateway to Africa and to Asia, to Europe. 
Through this land, I'm going to establish my people who are going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. The land, the land, the land. God drove out their enemies in the conquest so they could live in the land. The the 12 tribes settled living in the land. They had pride in the land that God gave them as a sign of the covenant. But when they abandoned the covenant, they faced the consequences of their action. And the first thing they lost was the land. After generations of rebellion and warning, it was taken away from them, the thing that they had come to love, but not love the most. They They loved it above their creator. And so for generations, they experienced foreign uh, entanglement. Began with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, not to mention all the tribes that came before that. But then you get into the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks. And now at the time of Jesus, you have occupation under the Romans. And it feels like even though they've returned to the land, they're still under, under foreign rule. The Romans are still there and it grieved the people. They were still, in a sense, in exile, having lost the land. And they coped with it in a variety of ways. Some of these names you'll recognize from like people in the Gospels that Jesus interacted with. There were the Sadducees who were religious leaders who coped with the desire to have their land back by collaborating with the foreign occupiers, by working with Rome to try to grab power. You had the Pharisees who Jesus tended to argue with the most who thought if we're just pure enough, then we'll get our land back. Then God will throw out the foreign oppressors. We'll get our power You probably didn't see the word Essenes in the New Testament, but it's talking about folks like John the Baptist who went out into the wilderness waiting for the day of God to come when they would get back their power. Then you have folks like zealots like Peter uh, who wanted to violently overthrow the foreign oppressors. But all of these were just attempts to cope with the fact that they they no longer had the land. They were all all attempts at undoing the effect of exile, but none of them demonstrated genuine repentance over the cause of exile. Exile, foreign occupation, was always a secondary issue. The primary issue was that they had abandoned their first love. And when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, blessings on you who mourn, he had this kind of mourning over the abandonment of our first love in mind. E. Stanley Jones said, Blessed are those that mourn is usually taken to refer to those who, as in the Old Testament, mourned for the restoration of Israel. Or in the more personal sense, those who mourn for their sins and their shortcomings. Uh, in either case, an anticlimax. But if this kind of mourning means an active sharing and bearing of the world's hurt and sin in order to cure it, If it means the kind of mourning that Jesus manifested when he wept over the city of Jerusalem, if there's the passion of the sorrow of the cross in it, then it's not an anticlimax, but a necessary counterpart in correction. This beatitude cuts across those who would say that religion is an escape mentality, a means of escaping pain and sorrow. Here is religion deliberately choosing sorrow for itself in order to cure it in others. What the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots failed to do was to genuinely turn to God in absolute surrender and grief and mourning over their collective rebellion. They were still, in each of their own ways, trying to control outcomes, dealing with the secondary issue and not the primary one. And with Jesus' words here, there's this invitation to repentance, which includes a weight of responsibility. 
It's what Jones meant when he said an active sharing and bearing of the world's hurt and sin. It's like in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, when he learns that the state of Jerusalem, having been destroyed by the Babylonians, weeps. And he confesses not only his own sins, but the sins of his people and the generations that preceded them. That he was taking on the collective responsibility and the heartbreak, getting at the nature of true repentance. And it makes us think that if all of us saw our world from God's point of view, God who knew what an innocent world was like, it would break our hearts to see how, how far we've fallen. Jesus says, for those of you who mourn, for those of you who feel the weight of, of the sin of the world, who get that things are wrong, blessings on you. Jones again. Jones was a missionary in India and always having these interfaith conversations with Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists. He said, blessed are those who feel for the world's sin and sorrow. This is the very opposite of the Hindu and the Buddhist ideal of being unaffected and aloof in spirit. Neither heat nor cold, neither joy nor sorrow, neither the world nor death affect them. They have gained the state of the unaffected, but not so in the teachings of Jesus. Followers of Jesus are affected and affected deeply. Having been cleansed by denying themselves and beginning to follow Jesus, they are now more sensitive than ever to the world's pain. Most people are so taken up with themselves and their own problems that the world's pain and sorrow can't get to them. But when a person grows great by denying themselves and following Jesus, then this expansion of soul brings its cross. He is hurt more wisely and more deeply. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, following Jesus is the profoundest wound that can be inflicted on a man. He is hurt more wisely and more deeply. Throughout human history, the world has been changed by those who mourn, by the mourners, who have this divine perspective and know that something is not right. It's like Johnny Cash. Do you ever watch the music video of the man in black? Until we're all reminded of the ones who are held back up front, there ought to be a man in black. People who have been out of step with their times but in step with their creator, people like William Wilberforce, who mourned and grieved the, the British Empire's role in the Atlantic slave trade. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who mourned and grieved and wrote against the complicity of the church in Hitler's Germany. People like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who mourned the inequality of African Americans who were just as much made in the image of God as you and I are, as, as, as white folks are. I think about my friend Chris Campbell who works in, in the foster care system in Oklahoma. Every time I have a meal with him, he weeps for the sake of these children who are estranged from their parents or who are living in group homes who are separated from siblings. Each one of these people mourns because they've been given a divine perspective. They've been given a grace to see what most people didn't see or most people couldn't see, that the slave trade was wrong, that Hitler was wrong, that racism is wrong, that it's wrong for children to be neglected, and there is a right. The mourners of the world get our attention. The songwriters of the world get our attention when they break our hearts. And mourning of this kind is not just wringing one's hands. Mourning of this kind is anchored in a deep sense of justice and hope. 
Justice because people see how God's intentions have run uh, off course, how God's name is being dishonored, and hope because there's a belief that there's something that we can do about it. And the mourners, the men and the women who stand at the front in black, tether us to our divine potential and call us to remember that this is not as it was meant to be. Jesus says, blessings on all of you who mourn and who are brokenhearted. But then hold on to the second part. Because you will be comforted. That our deepest longings for justice and for hope, for things that have gone wrong to be made right, in the fullness of time, those desires will not go unmet. But they're there as a sign that they will be made right, that evil and justice in the end, injustice will be confronted. And so when tragedy strikes, when the worst stuff happens, we pray, we do what we can, and we also remind our hearts in the fullness of time, this too will be made right. Jesus says, you will be comforted. When I was a kid, I felt like the Lord said that I was going to be a comforter to people, which I didn't like very much because comforter sounded like a pansy thing to be, like a blanket. Come on, give me a more masculine image or something, God. A blanket. But man, comfort is a, is a really powerful image. Uh, the, its origin has, comes from the word con meaning with and fortis meaning strength. To comfort is to come alongside another in strength or to strengthen by one's presence. Dang, well, that's the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus has done in his incarnation. He's come alongside a broken and a mourning humanity and strengthening it it by his very presence, coming alongside us in our weakness with his strength. Jesus said, all of you who mourn blessings on you because in me, As I said last week, the kingdom of the heavens is uniquely available. I'm here to offer you my strength. I will make all things right. In Jesus, we find a companion to help you to bear, to endure, and to stand up under the pain and the grief and the injustices of life. Not only to help us endure the experience of pain and grief now, but also to look with hope toward a future where he will undo its causes where he will make all the sad things come untrue, where he'll upend death, where he'll undo tragedy, where he'll eradicate violence. Blessings on all you who mourn because you will be comforted and this too will be made right. I have this great little prayer book called Every Moment Holy and I've given out a bunch of them to many of you. It's a great like Prayers for non-traditional times and non-traditional topics. And uh, I came across this one. They call it a liturgy for those who weep without knowing why. And uh, as a teenager, I feel like I cried a ton, mostly at church. That's basically the only place I cry. And sometimes I cry without really knowing. And I told my brother once that it's like my soul was just sighing, like kind of like absorbed the stress of just being a human being in the world. And this is such a perfect prayer for folks who find themselves in those moments who weep without knowing why. There's so much lost in this world, O Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that's broken, 
What is best in this world has been bashed and battered and trodden down. What was meant to be the substance has become the brittle shell, haunted by the ghosts of a glory so long crumbled that only its rubble is remembered now. Is it any wonder we should weep sometimes without knowing why? It might be anything, and then again, it might be everything. We feel this. We who are your children feel this empty space where some lost thing should have rested in its perfection, and we pine for those nameless glories. We pine for all the wasted stories in our world. We pine for these present wounds. We pine for our children and for their children too, knowing each will have to prove how this universal pain is also personal. We pine for all the children born into these days of desolation whose regal robes were torn to tatters before they were even swaddled in them. Lord, how can we not weep when waking each day in this veil of tears? How can we not feel those pangs when we, wounded by others, so soon learn to wound as well and in the end wound even ourselves? We grieve what we cannot heal and we grieve our half-belief having made an easy peace with disillusion, aligning ourselves with a self-protective lie that would have us kill our best hopes just to keep our disappointments half-confined. We feel ourselves wounded by what is wretched, foul, and fell. But we are sometimes wounded by the beauty as well, for when it whispers, it whispers of the world that might have been our birthright but is now banished, now withdrawn, as unreachable to our wounded hearts as ancient seas receded down some endless dark. We weep, O Lord, for those things that, though nameless, are still lost. We weep for the cost of our rebellions, for the mocking and hollowing of holy things, for the inward curve of our souls, for the evidence of death outworked in every field and tree and blade of grass, crept up in every creature, alert in every longing, infecting all fabrics of life. We weep for the leers our daughters will endure, as if to be made in a reflection of your beauty were a fault for which they must pay. We weep for our sons, sabotaged by profiteers who seek to warp their dreams before they even come of age. We weep for all the twisted alchemies of our times that would turn what might have been gold into crowns of cheap tin and then toss them into refuse bins as if love could ever be a cast-off thing one simply might be done with. We weep for the wretched expressions of all things that were first built of goodness and glory but are now their own shadow twins. We have wept so often and we will weep again. And yet, there is somewhere in our tears a hope still kept. We feel it in this darkness, like a tiny flame when we're told that Jesus also wept. You wept. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, O oh Lord, heaved with the great grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible, Jesus, that you in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving over Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. 
Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession? That we, your children, in our groaning with the sadness of creation, could be joining in some burdened work of coming restoration? Is it possible that when we weep and don't know why, it's because the curse has ranged so far and so wide that we weep at that which breaks your heart because it, is, it, it has also broken ours, sometimes so deeply that we cannot explain our weeping even to ourselves? If that's true, then let such weeping be received, O Lord, as an intercession newly forged of holy sorrow. Let our tears anoint these broken things and let our grief be as their consecration, a preparation for their promised redemption, our sorrow sealing them for the day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out like the shedding of an old gardener's glove. Lord, if it please you when your children weep and don't know why, use our tears to baptize what you love. Blessings on all of you who mourn. In the fullness of time, you will be comforted. The God of all comfort wants to come alongside you in strength if you weep without knowing why, or if there's an acute injury that's causing pain, a loss in your heart. Jesus says blessings on you. You will be comforted. Let's pray. For those here today who just feel an acute sadness, maybe you don't know why, you're just sad. Your soul's just heavy. Or maybe you hear and there's a very clear Genesis event that's the, the cause of your sadness. You miss somebody. You've lost somebody or something. Or you feel like a season has passed. You feel like it has been. Blessings on you in the name of Jesus. May the God of all comfort come alongside you with strength and hold your head high. To hold your head in his chest as you just weep in his presence. May you experience the comforting gift, the presence of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit today. And maybe as you come and receive communion today, you don't have words for yourself. Know that in your weakness, the Holy Spirit is praying for you with groans that are deeper than words grieving with you what might have been or could have been, but will be redeemed in the fullness of time. All of us who are here, you're thinking not of yourself, but of someone that you know or you love. I just would encourage you to pray for them, to intercede for them, that God has brought their face or their name to mind, that you'd pray for them, that you'd join Jesus in interceding for them. Lord Jesus, I pray by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit that you'd help us to be the kind of community that can be candid about our grief and name our pain, be the kind of community that can find healing with one another in the presence of Jesus. Would you show up in strength and in power and be strong when we are weak and powerless? We just say that we need you, Lord Jesus. And our world desperately needs to hear these words of blessing. So if there are people to whom we can extend this blessing, the people we work with and live with and play with, would you give us the courage to just say, God loves you. And Jesus, as we come around your table, we ask for a special awareness of your presence. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for identifying with the isolation that the world feels and the worst of pain and abandonment that many people feel by yourself going on the cross for our sake becoming poor. And thank you that you've taken this pain and you have redeemed it through your resurrection. So we hope 
confidence that you will redeem our pain now. When Christ returns and the dead are raised, we are changed and all things are renewed. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.